So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> well, if you travel up 85, I believe it is, travel up to Richmond anyway, and then take 64 east toward the Tidewater area of Virginia, you will... You'll pass by a small paper mill town called West Point. And as you get near the, the exit for West Point, you begin to smell a certain odor. And then as you, if you were to go to West Point, the, the closer you get to West Point, the stronger that odor becomes. It's a paper mill town. So if you've ever been to any paper mill town you know that distinctive smell. Probably some other mill towns have that, that same aroma that they give off. Um, that's actually where Rachel is from, so that's why I've been there a few times. Uh, she grew up in West Point, and I was talking with her dad. Her parents were here this weekend. I was talking with her dad about it, and I said, I was actually thinking about mentioning West Point in, in my sermon uh, this Sunday. And so we began talking about West Point and that distinctive smell. And uh, he was saying, yeah, it gets in your clothes. And so if you want to go to dinner uh, into Williamsburg that night, you need to pay attention to what sort of clothes you're wearing. You don't want to be working at the plant and then go in those same clothes because others will look at you funny. It has a distinctive smell, almost that of, of rotten eggs. And it's because some of the chemicals that they use in treating the wood in order to, to make the product puts off a sort of sulfur uh, similar to the smell of rotten eggs. And so it, it just it surrounds you, kind of like a uh, pig pen in, in the, the cartoon, the Peanuts cartoons. There's this cloud of dust following pen, pig pen around everywhere he goes. That's how you feel if you stay in West Point any sort of time. Um, <clears throat> well, where, where's, the, where's the illustration here? Where's the transition point here? Well, as I was thinking about this passage this week and about our witness to Christ, it's true that each one of us gives off a certain aroma. Now, hopefully you've all had showers, you've all bathed, so you're not giving off a certain, uh, that sort of aroma. I'm speaking metaphorically here, in that we all give off a sort of aroma wherever we go. It's kind of like this, this atmosphere around us, this aroma that we're giving off is either a, a positive pleasing aroma, the aroma of Christ, or it is a, a, a sulfuric odor that puts people off, that drives people away. And the gospel has a certain aroma, the scripture tells us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and following, Paul is telling the Corinthians about this aroma of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 and following, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma of death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. So there Paul is, is talking about giving off the aroma of the gospel as we travel, as we uh, share the love of Christ, as we proclaim Christ crucified for sinners. Others are, are hearing that. Others are sensing that either as an aroma of life or an odor of death. And it all depends on if they receive it with faith or not. 
But all too often, Christians, we can become the offense itself rather than the gospel. You see, we can live in such a way that is not in line with the gospel, that instead of allowing the claims of Christ and the claims of the gospel to give offense, we are the ones giving offense. And so sometimes Christians will say, well, uh, the scripture says the gospel is going to offend people, so it's not my problem if I offend other people. But that's not at all what Paul is talking about there in 2 Corinthians. Well, apparently here in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul addresses a situation in which the Corinthians are putting off a negative odor, uh, giving an anti-witness, giving a negative witness for Christ. Rather than allowing the gospel to serve in as offense to those who reject it, they themselves are becoming offense by their actions, particularly their actions of ungodly living in bringing lawsuits against one another. So let's look at our passage and see how this plays out in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11. Paul says, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. It is, is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Thanks be to God for his word. Our Heavenly Father, as we consider your word, as your word is preached, we pray that you would move in our hearts, that we would not only have an understanding, an intellectual sense of what it is that you are teaching us, but that we would have an inward affection to obey, that you would give us an inward desire to love you more, to to trust you and to to live in light of your gospel in this word. We pray that you would apply this word to our hearts by your Holy Spirit, so that we would live according to your word and glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we saw that God is working among us, even in something as difficult to understand, perhaps, or controversial as church discipline. That as 
The church holds one another accountable. As we hold one another accountable in the church, God is actually the one behind it all. God is the one working in our midst to preserve us from falling away. He is working in our midst to purify us, to, to purify us so that one day when he returns, we will pre- be presented as a, a beautiful bride without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And he's also providing a witness through us. Um, remember, a part of what Paul is, is getting at here, even in the first six chapters of uh, this letter to the Corinthians, is that they are living as ungodly people in the midst of their culture. They've taken on sinful aspects of their culture. They're not living as witnesses to Christ. And so in the instance of the man uh, caught in sin who was tolerated among the Corinthians, uh, it wasn't even tolerated a, a, among the culture around them. And so they were serving as a negative witness to those around them. But through church discipline, through us holding one another accountable, God is working to purify us that we might serve as a witness. That we might not be separated out from the culture, but that we would be set apart from the culture. That we would be in the world, but not of the world. That, that there would be something definitively different about who we are compared to the rest of the culture. So God is at work among us. Uh, we, we saw last week, we're not to judge outsiders. Rather, we, can, we have the freedom to come alongside of them, the privilege to come alongside of them as friends, or as servants, or as witnesses. And we are called to judge one another in the church. Not in a self-righteous sense, but in the sense of holding one another accountable. Helping one another in this pilgrim journey to our homeland. Well, all this talk of judging that uh, Paul is, has been doing reminds him of something else that's going on in this church, in this Corinthian church. There's a related discussion here about misrepresenting Christ, about how the Corinthians are not providing a, a good witness for Christ. What is it? They're bringing lawsuits against one another. They're bringing lawsuits against one another in the church. Fellow believers... Uh, bringing uh, suits against one another. <clears throat> well, many have seen this, these verses in chapter 6. It's kind of a, an instruction manual for lawsuits, uh, how we're to go about it, if we're to do it, if we're not, uh, just to take it um, straight down the line as a direct correlation, a direct application to our situation. And there are points of application. There are some practical applications for us concerning Well, what does the scripture say about bringing lawsuits against brothers or sisters in Christ? But really, there's a broader point here that I think uh, is Paul's main point, and that has to do with what Christianity is compared to what is true of our culture. Christianity is not about laying claim to your rights, but about laying down your rights for the sake of others. Christianity is not about reaching out to grasp more and more and more, but it's about reaching out to be able to serve and give to others. So if we have inherited an everlasting kingdom, Christians, if we have inherited an everlasting kingdom in heaven, we can give it all away in the here and now. We can be free to not cling to stuff in this life because we know we have it all in the next. So to take a look at 
Paul's teaching here, I want us to consider three main headings. First, the problem with lawsuits among brothers and sisters. The problem with lawsuits. Second, the alternative to lawsuits. And third, what it is that gives us the power to take the alternatives. The problem with lawsuits, the alternative to bringing lawsuits against brothers and sisters. And then what it is that gives us the power to take the alternative. So consider first the problem with lawsuits among brothers and sisters in Christ. Clearly it's a problem, right? Just simply reading, not knowing much about the background, not knowing much about the passage, you can just simply read these verses and know Paul has a big problem with these Christians bringing lawsuits against one another. Verse 5, he says, I say this to your shame. In other words, you ought to be ashamed of yourselves for the way that you're behaving with one another in the church. You ought to feel guilty about it. You ought to recognize your sin here and notice that you are bringing reproach upon the name of Christ. And then in verse 7, he says, Actually then, it is already, already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. You're losing. You are being defeated amongst yourselves because of these actions that you're taking against one another. And the reason that there's such a big problem with lawsuits among believers in this instance, they were failing to take into account at least two things. One, they were failing to take into account future and present realities about who they were in Christ. And two, they were failing to take into account the aroma of Christ that they were to be giving off. So notice that that first uh, thing that their action of bringing lawsuits against one another, fails to take into account. Look at verse verse, uh, 2. Paul says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? He's arguing from greater to lesser. He's arguing from future realities about who we are in Christ. And then also verse 3. He says, Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? Again, greater to lesser. Uh, Paul here is is pointing out the the future reality that not only will will Christ reign, he currently reigns, but there will come a time where he will reign and judge everyone according to their deeds. And, And there's some sense in which believers will be a part of his rule and reign. There's some sense in which believers will be a part of that judging work of judging the world and of judging angels. Now, considering judging angels um, and judging the world, in Matthew 19, Jesus says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And interesting enough, This was to comfort them. This was to comfort Jesus' disciples as they were leaving everything to follow him. So he's he's reminding his disciples of these future realities in order to bring comfort to them during their life. And Jesus says, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And so there's this great reversal in which believers are counted as being the most foolish among all people in this world. What? You actually believe in a virgin birth? You actually believe that uh, someone was conceived by the Holy Spirit 
and then born of the Virgin Mary. You actually believe that someone dying on the cross can serve as a sacrifice for sinners? And, and the world looks at these things and thinks that is absolute foolishness. You actually believe that uh, Jesus rose from the dead physically, that his heart stopped beating, and then somehow miraculously God raised him from the dead? The world looks upon these things and says these things are foolish. And so we are counted as believers as some of the most foolish people in all of the world. And yet, in the new kingdom, in the new heavens, in the new earth, there will be a great reversal. Those who were last will be first. Those who were accounted as of nothing are heirs of the kingdom of God. And so Paul points out these future realities so that we might be able to understand, yes, we do have the capacity to deal with these smaller issues if we are going to be judging in these larger issues. In Paul's mind, the future realities, these future realities qualify us in the present to work things out between believers who are in conflict. It's kind of like a preparation almost. It's as if Paul is saying, you're preparing yourselves by working out these conflicts among the brothers rather than taking them to a civil court. You're preparing yourselves for what will be true of you in the future. Judging the world and judging fallen angel, angels. But it also fails to... Uh, so he fails to take, they fail to take into account f- these future realities, but also the present realities. Uh, in particular, that the saints have been gifted with wisdom in the here and now. So verse 5, Paul says, I say this to your shame. You should be ashamed of yourselves. He can't believe it. He says, is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to, to decide between his brothers? And so there's this idea that Paul thinks the church has been gifted by God in a certain way to be able to handle these conflicts. Uh, Later on in 1 Corinthians, Paul will be talking about how God has gifted the body in exactly the way he has seen fit. It's not lacking in anything that, that God desires it to do. And so it's reasonable to think that God has gifted our church and each local church in some way with, with the gift of wisdom. That there is someone among us, the elders included, that there is someone among us who is able to have wisdom and discernment about certain conflicts within the church. And so Paul says, suing one another fails to take into account the future realities of who we are in Christ as well as present realities that God has gifted his church with wisdom. So suing one another fails to take into account future and present realities, but also suing other Christians, secondly, fails to take into account the anti-witness given to the world the negative witness that it gives to our world when brothers and sisters are at one another's throats trying to take advantage of one another. In chapter 5, we saw the negative witness that the Corinthians were given because they were tolerating sin in their midst, a sort of sin that not even the, the pagans, not even unbelievers would tolerate among themselves. And here, Paul is concerned about this 
action that these believers are taking in suing one another. Verse 6, but brother goes to law with brother, and this before unbelievers in front, you're doing this. You're not only doing this, you're doing this in front of unbelievers. It's a defeat for you already. You've already lost. See, really, there's also something more going on here than simple lawsuits among brothers and sisters. Apparently, what was happening was that some of the more well-to-do brothers and sisters, perhaps, were using the civil law courts in order to take advantage of others. They were using the system in order to swindle others. Paul points out this particular sin a couple times in these, in these verses. Swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, those who use advantages to take other people's monies, those who take advantage of other uh, poorer people in order to get what they want. The criminal court of this day was fairly impartial, and we see some of that from uh, what Paul through, went through in his imprisonments and his ordeals. But from the evidence we have, the civil court in many ways was corrupt, uh, meaning judges felt sure they could get kickbacks for certain judgments that they would make perhaps material gain or even prestige. And so they would go into these civil courts, these judges, they would go into these uh, trials knowing that they might benefit in some way by ruling in one way or another. And so it appears that these Christians were taking advantage of the system, of the civil courts, in order to swindle money out of poorer believers. Verse 8, Paul says that they're guilty of this. You yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brothers and sisters in Christ. What's going on here is selfish ambition, swindling. And Paul says it is shameful. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. So you know, we know at least one thing. We know many things, but one thing that is an offensive odor to unbelievers. One thing that, that gives off a negative witness to unbelievers is greedy Christians. Greedy Christians. Christians who use others to get what they want. People who, Christians who step on others to get a leg up to get higher, to, to boost themselves. And it's all driven by their own selfish ambition, their own selfish desires for more. You look at all many of these sins that Paul mentions in these passages. It's all about grasping for more, accumulating for yourself more, getting as much as you possibly can. And we see this throughout the prosperity gospel and prosperity preachers who seem to be all about gathering more for themselves, and they use, they manipulate poor Christians to get more for themselves, to gather more for themselves. But really this extends uh, beyond, as we're seeing, particular, the particular issue of lawsuits. It extends even to us individually. Now, we, we may not be defrauding others or wronging others to get more, but where does that come from? Where does that impulse to defraud others come from? It comes from a selfish desire for more. And so we ought to take stock in our own lives and think about our own hearts 
in our desire for more, grasping for more, always trying to get more. Consider in your own heart and and how this is connected to contentedness. Are Are you generally content? Are there some areas of your life where you are yearning for more material stuff, more more prestige? If you could just have something that you don't have, then you would finally arrive at where you would want to be and you would be happy with your life. There's a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. And he gives this image of one standing on a, a, a hill trying to reach for the clouds and he can't, can't even get close. But just over the horizon, he sees another hill. And it looks like the clouds are just above the hill. So you, you pack up all your things and you go to that hill thinking, now I'll finally be able to reach the sky. I'll finally be able to touch the sky. And you arrive at this next hill. And what do you find except the, the cloud is just as high as it ever was. You can't reach it. And so you see, again, you see another hill, hill after hill after hill. And it looks like the clouds are getting closer and closer to the hill, but you can never arrive at your destination. It always fails to satisfy us. And yet we still keep looking for this thing that will will make us happy, that will satisfy us. When are we going to learn that nothing in this world will satisfy us? No amount of goods, no raise that you could possibly get, no promotion that you could possibly get. These things were not meant to satisfy us and they never will. The perfect situation will not satisfy you. It will not make you happy. You will still be discontented until you find your contentment in Christ and Christ alone. This is all connected to what the Corinthians were doing in reaching for more, and it caused them to swindle others out of their money. Thankfully, there are alternatives to defrauding our brothers and sisters. There, there are different actions we can take. There were different actions that the Corinthians take could take rather than suing one another to get what they desired. You see, we've been changed in Christ. We've been made new. Our affections have changed. We behave in a different way. We long for different things now. And so consider these alternatives to lawsuits among brothers. The first one Paul mentions is is throughout these first 11 verses. He's hinting at it over and over again. He says at the beginning uh, in the form of a question, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare go to the law before the unrighteous? That means the unbelievers in the civil court and not before saints. You should be bringing these things before the saints. You should be dealing with these conflicts among the brothers in Christ. So the first alternative is the simple one. Bring your conflicts with one another and put them under the scrutiny of your brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. This is where these conflicts are to be dealt with among the brothers and sisters. So if, they, if the Corinthians had simply followed Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 18, they would have been able to avoid the civil courts probably. What does Jesus say in Matthew 18? Well, if your brother uh, has sinned against you in some way, what, do you do? what are you to do? You're to go to him. You're to tell him in a spirit of gentleness, yes, but you're to tell him his sin. Tell him the problem you have with him. And if he refuses to repent, then you are to take two or three with you as witnesses. Bring them along. The facts can be established. Maybe those witnesses will say, "Uh, you're being a little nitpicky here. There's not really a problem here. 
You're making too much out of this. Or maybe they'll say, yes, we do see this problem. This is a problem, brother, and you need to turn from your sin. Bring two or three along with you so that the facts can be established. If the brother still refuses to repent, then you are to take it to the church. And if he still refuses to repent, you are to treat him as a tax collector or an unbeliever. If they had carried this out in Corinth, perhaps they could have avoided the whole situation and it wouldn't have been brought shame upon the name of Christ. It wouldn't have served as an anti-witness to the gospel. But really, they had no interest in resolving conflicts, did they? They, again, were reaching for more. They wanted to build themselves up. They wanted to, to build up, to accumulate for themselves. They had no interest in resolving the conflicts. Their interest was in satisfying their selfish desires. That's one alternative. But another alternative, Paul says, is simply taking the loss. Simply taking the loss. In other words, laying down your rights. Laying down your claim, your rightful claim even. Laying down your need to win. Allowing the other side to defraud you. That doesn't feel right, does it? That doesn't feel good. Verse 7, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Paul's logic is you're already losing by bringing these lawsuits against one another. The actual way to win is by losing, by forfeiting your rights. Jesus said in Matthew five thirty nine and following, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile... Go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Our natural impulse is an eye for an eye. You punched me, I'm going to punch you back, right? You defraud me, well, I'm going to get even. Maybe even we have this desire to get revenge. I don't want to just get even. I want to get something back for my troubles as well. I'll get justice for myself. And yet, Paul shows us that there is the way of the world, an eye for an eye, demanding your rights, demanding your part of the claim, and there is the way of Jesus, laying down your rights for the sake of others, being defrauded. We might say being taken advantage of in some sense. So Paul is saying to the Corinthians, there's another way. There's another way than taking up these suits against one another. And it's this, simply taking the loss. Forfeiting your rights for the sake of Christ and for the sake of others. And as we think about this, as we think about the way of the world versus the way of Jesus, we can see it played out in Jesus' life, right? Consider how Jesus took the loss for your sake. He never demanded his rights. Even in becoming a human, the Son laid down his rightful claim at the right hand of the Father. Paul says in Philippians, he didn't consider it a thing to be grasped after, but he became a servant. 
he laid down his rights throughout his life. And then consider, as Jesus was being arrested, these armed guards come and surround him as Judas betrayed him. And Peter does the heroic thing hopefully any of us would do, right? He brings out his sword and he, he's ready to fight. This is the way of the world. This is the way we'll handle it. And Jesus says, no, this is not the way. This is not what my kingdom is like. Rather, he held his hands out to be arrested, right? Or consider even his suffering under Pontius Pilate. When he was beaten ruthlessly, he didn't fight back. When the guards spit upon him, he didn't spit back. He didn't throw back insults at them. Wouldn't you want to do that? Defend yourself. Defend your rights. I cannot be treated this way. And here is the Son of God laying down his rights. He patiently endured every lash upon his back. He patiently endured as The guards drove nails through his hands and his feet. He even patiently endured criminals mocking him and ridiculing him as they were hanging on crosses beside him. And he didn't throw insults back at them. Paul says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather lay down your claim to your rights and take the loss? And Jesus patiently endured the anger of God that was due to sinners. For sinners. He patiently endured the wrath of God. Though he had done no wrong. Though he took our sins upon himself. They weren't his own. They were ours. He took them upon himself as he suffered and died on the cross under the wrath of God. This wasn't the punishment he deserved. It wasn't a penalty he had earned. Couldn't he have claimed, these are not mine. Why should I pay for them? But it was our penalty which was placed upon his shoulders as he died on the cross. Compare what Jesus actually did with what he could have done. Couldn't he have called down 10,000 Angelic warriors from heaven to come to his aid? With the snap of his fingers, he could have. And he could have had all the powers and all the authorities of this world on their knees begging for forgiveness. Perhaps that's the way we would have done it. That's what we would like to see. And the wisdom of this world would have cheered. Now there's power. Now there's somebody we can get behind. Now there's somebody we can follow. Let's have him as our king. This is something we can respect. But it wouldn't have shown forth the wisdom of God. It wouldn't have shown forth the glory of God in saving sinners. For Jesus did more than simply die on the cross and patiently suffer being wronged. He did it for our sake. Brother and sister in Christ, he did it for you. He died for you. For your sins. So that you could be forgiven fully and freely. And when you throw in this idea of sacrifice, that Jesus actually died for me, a sinner, Well, then you begin to smell a fragrant aroma from the gospel. Isn't that pleasing? That Jesus would die 
for my sins. It looks like foolishness and weakness to some, to those of the world, to those who are perishing. It is the odor of death, but to those who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God and the power of God, the fragrant aroma of God coming down to save us. By patiently enduring loss, Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are reflecting the goodness of Christ and his sacrifice for us. You are acting like a Christian. You are imitating your Savior. So consider this even in smaller circumstances than just the particular issue of bringing lawsuits against one another. Consider your own tendency to not want to take the loss in your marriage. There's always that idea of, well, we've had some conflict. Well, who's going to be the first to say, I'm sorry? Who's going to be the first to come to the other and say, I was wrong in this and that. I'm laying down my arms. I'm laying down my claims. Even as right as they are, I'm laying down my rights to be right for your sake, for our sake, for the sake of the gospel. This happens in all kinds of relationships, doesn't it? With fathers and mothers and children, sons and daughters. Children, what would it be like for you to actually take the loss in some of these relational conflicts? For you to imitate Christ in some sense. Sacrificing your own claims for the sake of the relationship. We don't take the loss in order to be saved by him. We take the loss, we're able to take the loss because we have been saved by him. You see, this leads us to our last point. This is why you can actually take these alternatives. Why you can choose to take the loss instead of defrauding brothers and taking them to court. So why can you take this alternative? Let me just give you two reasons. You can take the loss. First, you can take the loss because you can be sure that justice will be done ultimately. You might think, well, if we just take the loss all the time, we're going to be defrauded. We're going to be walked over like uh, doormats. People are just going to take advantage of us. You think of children at an Easter egg hunt, and really what it's become often is an Easter egg race. right? All the eggs are spread out in the field, and the kids are lined up behind the starting line and they say go and they just all rush and get everything they can and you'll see the kids are just cramming eggs into their basket trying to get as many as they can because why if they don't they're all going to be gone you're not going to get any might be like some of you with teenagers at dinner time right if you don't get it now you're not going to have any of it so we we try to grab all that we can people are going to take advantage of us there's not going to be anything left for us if we don't demand our rights we can even become this way in regard to the rights we demand as christians in our country and i'm not saying we shouldn't have certain rights but i'm saying what is the heart motive in this to demand that we be given respect to demand that we have this or that but this grasping after everything we can get reveals a lack of faith in god will he not provide for his own Will he not answer his children when we pray, give us this day our daily bread? If we know how to give good gifts to our children, will he not give good gifts to us, his children? 
If, if our son asks for a piece of bread, something to eat, will we give him a stone? We know how to give good gifts to our children. How much more does the Lord know how to provide for his children? We can trust him. He will provide for us. And so if we can trust him to provide for our daily bread, we can also trust him for his justice. We can trust him that justice will be done even if we don't see it in this life. You see, the kind of justice we're looking for is not simply an earthly justice. If it were, then we could despair. We could become discouraged. Because what do we often see? We see the evil getting their way. We see the wicked seeming to increase all the more, getting richer and getting richer, growing in prestige. And, and where is the justice in this? Well, we can trust that justice will be done. Because ultimately, the believer's justice is that everything wrong in this world will be made right. And that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what he says in verse 9. Don't you know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, the covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Wrongdoers won't inherit the kingdom of God. We can be sure that justice will be done. And this, verse 9, would have a dual effect for the believers in Corinth. First, it would serve as a warning to them. Look, you're the ones who are defrauding your brothers. You're doing wrong against your brothers and sisters in Christ, trying to swindle them out of all that they have wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so if you are a wrongdoer, you need to repent of your sin. It would serve as a warning to these professing believers who are doing wrong against one another. But second, it would be a great comfort that wrongdoers will not go unpunished. Though it might look like they are unpunished in this life, there will come a day when all will give an account for what they have done in the body. And this is why we can patiently take the loss as others defraud us or wrong us to fill their own pockets. But the second reason we can take the loss has to do with our identity in Christ. Our identity as Christians, verse 11, such were some of you. Some of you were like this. These sins that I've mentioned in verse 9 and 10, he says, some of you were like this. You were these people. You were swindlers. You were wrongdoers. You were unrighteous. But you are no longer that. You have been changed. First he says, but you were washed. Just as we sang this morning, what can wash away my sins? The blood of Jesus. You were washed. You know, one of the things you look forward to most after a long day of manual labor. Uh, I've done many summers on top of a roof, ripping shingles off and putting new shingles on. And you get done with the day and your hands ache and your body aches. And there's dirt caked all over your hands and each crevice of your hand. And you just need a shower bad. You just want one really bad. And so you finally get off and you go take a shower and all of the filth comes off and it goes right down the drain and you are washed clean. 
brothers and sisters in Christ, before Christ, you were busy laboring in unrighteousness. You were busy laboring away in the dirtiness and filth of sin. It was caked on you. It was a part of who you were. But Jesus washed you by his blood, by his sacrifice. He washed you. You were washed by him. But you were sanctified. You were set apart. You were made new. Not only did, God, did Jesus wash away your sins, but he made you into a new creature. He's given you a new heart that now no longer desires sin ultimately, but desires Christ and righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be filled. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And we all like to justify our actions from time to time. We like to say we did such and such a thing in order to justify what we did. But this isn't what Paul means here. Here he means God has looked down upon you through the lens of Christ and his work for you. And he has found favor in you. Not because of anything you did. Not because you were able to manage to explain your actions away, your sins away but because of his sheer grace to you in Christ Jesus who died for your sins. For when you came to him in faith, God looked upon you in Christ and he says, you are pleasing in my sight. One of the words, phrases I'd love hearing when I was a boy, when I played a tough game or something or brought home a good grade and a parent or a coach would say, good job. I'm so proud of you. You have done well. And you know, we adults still enjoy hearing words of affirmation, words of favor. But we can't even begin to comprehend the glorious nature of justification, of what it means to be justified by the God of all the universe, whom we have rebelled against. That God looks down upon us in his son and says, well done, I love you. You are righteous in my sight. In Christ, it's as though we have perfectly kept all the commands of God. And through Christ, God is pleased with us. So our identity in Christ, we are no longer wrongdoers, but you have been washed. You have been sanctified. You have been justified in the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit. This means that we are God's children and we inherit all that he has. We are the heirs of the kingdom of God. So why can we take the loss? Why can you take the loss in your relationships? Even when you have been wronged or defrauded? Because no rights in this world, no material goods gained in the here and now can match the glories that await God's children in his kingdom that he freely gives to us. Let us pray together.